Okay, I, I think it's um, loaded and ready to go. Um, okay, I, I want to uh, primarily talk tonight about one a few of our preachers, and it will integrate into the, the rest of it, which is um, changes, challenges, policy decisions, and etc. <laughs> there may be a little bit of etc. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I felt like I didn't really, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna handle all the preachers. Um, we had periods of time when we had a lot of interim preachers, and some were interim for pretty good bits of time. Um, some of them probably would have liked to have been more than interims, but there came a time. Uh, however, Ed Neely was, he preached here for about six years, I think, and uh, he was part-time because he was teaching and, and working on his degree. Um, I, I think I'm right on this. Ed Neely Cullum, for those of you, I, I need to remember to <laughs> say last names, was the first full-time white professor at TSU and David followed him later uh, and it was an intentional move on his behalf uh, he had been teaching at Lipscomb and his racial philosophy was not in line with the administration as a lot of people uh, and he just didn't want to go back there under that situation so he chose to go to an all-black school which I you thought know, was just year approximate year? Um, mid 60s wasn't it? it was somewhere around the mid 60s maybe 60 to 66 we came maybe? we can well now we came in 61 he was preaching here when we came yeah, but the there was a didn't he wasn't there a gap and then he came back and I, I may not be remembering that correctly. He was preaching here when we came. Yeah, but that was, that was a fairly long gap before he came back for a while. Yeah, but, it was. But uh, it was mid-60s somewhere along in there when he, when he left. When he left? Yeah. Okay. Because John McRae was already here in 69. Yes. Um, Ed was probably one of the brightest people I ever knew. Uh, he was very frank in his opinions and um, he was never afraid to express them. He really I think broke the ground more than any other single person I know for Otter Creek as we are now and that's my evaluation but I think a lot of people would concur with that uh, because he was very forward-thinking. Ed never, he never answered a question he, his teaching method was he posed a question, but he didn't answer it. Socratic. He, he wanted you to think about it and answer it. And that was the way he taught, and it was the way he preached. And so it was, to me, it was very provocative. It, 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 it challenged your thinking. And that's what he wanted to do. But a lot of people were bothered by that. A lot of people can't handle that method. And this is a statement that's mine too, but Otter Creek is one of the hardest churches I've ever been in, I've been in a few, to find a preacher that suited them. I mean, we, we had so many, 
so much criticism of preachers and even if they were good and even if they were liked they were still criticized I mean people really nitpicked them I thought would you agree with that Bob uh, it, it was really a, and it one of the reasons is that we were very diverse and it was just hard to find anybody that would please everybody and it was even hard to find somebody that would please everybody even part of the time but in the end of the road one of the things that has saved us was that we always came back and unified in our diversity and that was something that and it still is one of the hallmarks of this church I think you can you can disagree and, and you can disagree in great degrees <laughs> but we all still came back and had a considerate feeling for each other. I can remember Sunday school classes that were just really, got really hot and heated. But at the end of them, and, and this class is representative of that kind of thing too. At the end of them, everybody hugged everybody else. And that's important. I, I ran this back. Um, Bob, because I wanted to be sure that I was right about that, but I just had to tell this about Ed. Uh, I should have called Pam White because she would have been in that class, Pam, um, Pam Green then. But um, for some reason, and, and I'm almost sure that this went through the eldership, somebody was concerned that our teenagers were not getting any sex education. And if they were, they were getting the wrong kind. Now, I think they discussed quite a bit whether or not this was under the purveyance of the church and how they wanted to do it. But somehow it came out that Ed would do it. <laughs> well, a few people couldn't imagine. Now, he did a good job and he did it correctly and in his matter-of-fact way and, and he, if they wanted to ask questions, they asked questions. And Pam was in the class and um, he made sure that in his descriptions of the reproductive system that he used the correct anatomical term. <laughs> he didn't mesh anything there. Well, you know, there were a few parents that got a little bit upset. And I remember he, on the Sunday night, he came in and, and talked to the whole congregation about it. Um, but, um, I don't know that they were as upset over the fact that he was doing it or how he was doing it as they were that he used the correct terminology. <laughs> but that was very characteristic of Ed and it was just something that I just, uh, if he were alive he would be he'd be chuckling to know that I told that. But um, that was in the very early years that we were here. Our children were way too small to take advantage of that. <clears throat> um, but. We had a lot of interim people after Ed left, and then John McRae came. Before we left Ed, leave Ed, I'd like to mention that when I was a teenager, <coughs> we had a workbook for teenagers called Crossroads Questions. He wrote it. They were ethical situations. I have a copy of that. Yeah. I did have a copy of that. I, I had a copy one time. I don't know if I still do. And he, he wrote it. He wrote. Yeah, he wrote we, several workbook kinds of things because he didn't like the he didn't like the curriculum materials you bought from 
whatever source. He always wrote his own. But it was Socratic. Yes, it was. He, he didn't give the right answer to any situation. Mm -hmm. He described the situation and then would present alternatives. Well, I was, I was kind of used to that because that was my dad's style of teaching. It was, he, he didn't do it exclusively, but he liked to do it. And if he, if he, if he was in an area where he thought it was a, a good move to use that method, he would. And I, I can remember as a child, and we'd go home after I heard him, he didn't preach regularly, but he'd preach if somebody needed him to. And I would say, Daddy, you didn't really tell us how to do that. And he said, that's up to you. And that was, I guess, my first experience, really, in a class. And, and Ed taught his classes at Lipscomb that way. I had him for, I know, two psychology courses. And, and he taught his classes there, which was not always receptive to a lot of students who didn't want to have to do that, have to think for themselves. Um, just by the way, I looked it up. He joined the staff at TSU, which I guess was still Tennessee A&I. No, it was TSU then. In 1963. They merged with UT, UT's Nashville campus, mm -hmm. uh, for a while, but I don't know when they took back their name TSU. Well, they first went from Tennessee A&I to Tennessee A&I State University. Okay. Yes. Yeah, and that's, yes. and that's what it was in 63, uh -huh. uh -huh. was Tennessee A&I State. Well, we always just called it TSU regardless. That was, that was the common name for it. Um, thank you. So John came. John was teaching at Lipscomb at the same time. Uh, John was uh, a very good speaker and he was a very good thinker. He had, his interest was biblical archaeology and we had a lot of sermons on that. <laughs> Which <laughs> he was also a Greek teacher and he, he would teach a class for the, from a Greek New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's been a long time since I've heard of good archaeology sermon. I used to hear those as much as I did. <laughs> and he went on digs and uh, you know was very um, very much into it and he too left Lipscomb because of the racial position that they had then. And um, John was here for I, I don't know maybe five years that long Bob, at least that long. At least that long, and maybe a little after that. Um, but he was uh, preaching here when we had the charismatic situation, <clears throat> and um, I I remember vividly. It was a very disturbing situation. A lot of people have asked me things about it since then, and they said, you know, you all were speaking in terms tongues in church, and I said no. We were not speaking in terms in church. It never came to that. The way it started, and if I get off on this, Bob, correct me. The way it started was that we had a husband-wife team who came here during the summer from Texas, I think. And um, they were very much into this movement. And without telling anybody what was going on, it, well, the, the woman's father was an elder, but the general eldership knew nothing about this. I mean, over, no, nothing was ever said. Nobody knew what was going on. They wanted to teach the young people, and they did it out of their home. 
It was not done in the church. They did it out of their home. And for a while, nobody really knew that anything was happening. And Pam Green was the one that, Pam White was the one that was the whistleblower on it. And she was getting very disturbed about it. And so she went and talked to Kennedy about it. And Kennedy was disturbed that the church didn't know what was going on. And these were highly impressionable young teenagers. And it was, it was a volatile situation. It, it, it was. Well, we had some, a few families that were beginning to get involved in this that, that were hearing things from Belmont and who sometimes went there on occasion. So it, it really blew up. I, I don't know any other way to say it. It just blew up. And um, at that time, we had a situation where if you were appointed elder, you were appointed in perpetuity. Uh, and as long as you live, you, that was it. Uh, and um, we had a town hall meeting. We may have had more than one. I remember one. And it was, uh, it was an interesting meeting. Oh, a heated meeting. A heated meeting. And a lot of people spoke very openly and very frankly about how they felt about it. And um, a lot of things came out of that meeting. I mean, it, it settled, it brought it out in the open. And, and it needed to be. And it gave everybody a chance to speak their positions about it if they had one or to explore whatever. And then after that, it cooled a little bit. Um, we had some families who left and went to Belmont. And ultimately, they probably would have anyway, I think, because they were already kind of leaning in that direction. But one of the things that came out of it, and it may have been one of the the good things that came out of it. And there were a lot of discussions in the eldership and, and, and a lot of these things were recommended. And one of the things that was recommended was that we appoint elders in cycles. And I don't know, this may have been modified a little bit along the way, but, but the, the theory behind it was the same, that we appoint them and that regularly we affirm, reaffirm them and if they're not reaffirmed by the congregation, then they leave the eldership. And um, it's, it's become a little broader now, I think, than it was at the very beginning. But what happened at that point was all the elders resigned except Dr. Hall, and he refused to resign. But all the other elders resigned, and Can we... Pardon? Can you just have one elder? <laughs> well, they, we, we reappointed re re us. But I'm saying, if all the rest of them resigned, then he did it. Yeah. For some period of time, there was one elder. That's, that's, I don't know if that's good. Well, we, we appointed, we just kind of, I think they just kind of ignored it. Uh, but he well, he left and, and he went left to Belmont. Uh, his, son was, just, yeah. his son was one of the ringleaders of yeah. the people who were actually involved in this. Mm -hmm. Was it Ogle or BJ? Ogle. Well, it was uh, the the daughter and her husband first, and then first, yeah. Ogle and, and yeah, right. B, I don't think BJ ever got involved in it, yeah, but right. but Ogle was and yeah. Bonnie was. His father Vanderbilt before, moved, before this mm -hmm. happened, then he moved away to Texas. But we appointed the new eldership. We pretty did. pretty we soon, did. very soon after that, and uh, Paul was not. He was not not reappointed. Not reappointed. And our justice decided not to stand for re-election or whatever. Do you know how many elders they had then? 
roughly? I mean, they're probably around 10, 15. probably. That, uh, somewhere around that. Around 10, yeah. Uh-huh. But that, it was an interesting period. And um, John was, I think, a little bit, he didn't quite know how to recover from it. And it came at a time when he was about ready to leave Lipscomb. So he just resigned. John McRae. So he just, let, they, they left and he took a position at MTSU and taught there until they went to Wheaton, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and um, so that took care of that period. Uh, after John left, the um, elders decided we needed some stabilization. And so, and they wanted to kind of keep an open relationship with Lipscomb. That was, they felt that was important. Um, and so they decided to hire Carol Ellis. Well, it was kind of a divided thing. A lot of people thought we needed a full-time minister, and Carol was not full-time. Uh, but he was a healing factor for a while. Um, Carol preached like he'd always preached, and it was not what Otter Creek, all of Otter Creek wanted to hear. It was. Um, but but it was a healing time, and he did help to heal. And um, I told once, and I, I think this was in the thing that you put in the in the book. Um, and it, this was kind of a typical sort of thing from from Carol, but not the way this happened. Um, Carol was just preaching away one Sunday morning, and, and you know he he was very passionate when he preached, and he was always animated, and he moved around a lot. And so he was, whatever he was doing, he said, and if you heard the devil knocking at your door, what would you do? And Christopher Jennings was about four years old, and he was sitting down in the front, you know, and he was so enthralled with the way Carol was preaching. He just piped up and he said, I'd let him in and open the door. <laughs> that broke up the assembly. Carol, Carol laughed so much he couldn't even recover. He just stood up to the pulpit and just laughed. <laughs> but there were several episodes like that. And um, I can remember, I was hoping that Charlie's granddaughter would be, be here. But um, one year, Charlie Armstrong was always the Santa Claus at the kindergarten for Christmas. And one year he was sick. And couldn't, and he got sick last minute, and and we had to find a Santa Claus for the kids. And Toddy said, if and Toddy was Mrs. Ellis, and Toddy was a unique individual. Um, Toddy said, "Well, this is a woman who lobbied against equal rights for women." She said, "Don't you think that a, a Mrs. Claus would be as good as a Mr. Claus?" Uh, and even in, in spite of the fact she protested one way, Katati was the original women's liver. Uh, but we loved her. So she came and found a costume of some kind and went to the kindergarten and did the Mrs. Claus because Santa was sick that day. And the kids all liked it so much they said, let's just bring Mrs. Claus back all the time. <laughs> <laughs> they liked it. but. Um, we decided, we, as the church decided, that we really needed somebody full-time to work with us, that it was essential to our growth 
and to a lot of other things. And um, Carol was, a little, I think he was a little hurt because he thought he would just be there forever and ever and ever. But we gave him a trip to the Holy Land and um, started looking for a full-time minister. And I guess this was the first full-time one we had, and that was Tommy, Tommy Daniel. Uh, and Tommy was good for the church. He, he challenged us in a lot of ways. Um, Tommy was, it, personally, he was a little shy, still is. But he, when Tommy got in the pulpit, he took on a life yeah. of its own. Yes, he was a different person. He was a different person, and, and he, he was a good preacher. And I think generally everybody liked Tommy. He was one of the rare people that you never heard anything negative about. If you did, it was a very minor and significant kind of thing. There was no controversy surrounding him during the time he was here. And I always remember that night that Larry came home from the elders meeting and he said, well, I have sad news. And I said, what's going to happen? He said, well, Tommy wants to leave. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of things in that decision that we didn't know for a long time. Uh, but he decided that he wanted to step down and do something else. And he continued to come here to church for a long time. But uh, it was, um, I think he, you know, did very well for as long as he was here with us. It, it, it worked well. Um, and then after that was Perry, and then Tim, and then, then Josh. And uh, I, I hope Josh hears this, but I've told him this many times. Um, when Josh came, um, I heard him, and Bernie and I always had a little conversation about who we wanted and who we didn't want. And, it was, and Larry told me I was a loser because every time I picked a candidate for a preacher, he was never the one we hired. <laughs> I had a really good track record. Um, but I told Bernie, I said, you know, I don't, he's awfully young, and this is a hard congregation to handle. And, and I don't know if somebody that young to, can do it or not. And I've told Josh that I was never so glad to be wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because um, I, I've had, maybe I don't talk to the right people, but I've never heard anything negative about Josh. Maybe they know I like him and they don't want to say anything negative yeah, to me. You don't have to talk to everybody. Right. I haven't people, talked to everybody. Well, I, I figured. He, I mean, he, he, like anybody else, gets negative comments. But well, I'm sure. I, yeah. I can't imagine being here and not I getting mean, them. Uh, he, he has remarkable pastoral skills for somebody his age. Well, he's such a good communicator. Mm -hmm. He has extraordinary communication skills. But um, I think growing up a twin... <laughs> Being tall, uh, all of that made him comfortable in his skin, well, so he can handle things that other people can't handle. Well, Larry said that one of the things that they decided had to be the chief uh, qualification for anybody that came to Otter Creek to preach was that he not have a thin skin. I think any preacher would be better not be. Better off. But it's a little more here. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's a little more yeah, here. You're right. Well, if you, I wrote in the cookbook that if you have two otter preachers, you have three opinions. That's right. <laughs> absolutely. Um, one of the, I, I need to move along. Um, 
one of the things that I remember, and this was a slow evolution, I don't think anybody realized what was happening until it just kind of happened by itself. But when we first came, we had groups that did home visitations. And Larry Wilson hated that. He just hated it. <coughs> and you know, you'd go in, you'd go knock on somebody's door and, and if they were new or been here a while, you'd welcome them and visit a little bit. Who wants to be disturbed after dinner with half-dressed? You know, it was not the best way to do it. And he would do anything he could to get out of taking our assignment. There's a Jill Miller film strip. <laughs> well, it was an improvement, maybe, you know. But I, we never saw any productive fruit from that kind of thing. And what we did instead was somebody came and they'd been there a while, we'd just take them home with Sunday night supper. And we had hamburgers on Sunday night and they were welcome to have a hamburger with us. That's what we always had. That was our kids' decision, not ours. Um, and it worked so much better. And I can remember many, you all and Fletcher and Gail and a host of them like that, that that really found a home at Otter Creek because the people were so hospitable and so receptive and they felt very free to to talk about what they wanted to talk about, to raise doubts and, and to just get to a feeling that this is a comfort zone that they could really thrive in. So that was a really good way of doing it. There are a lot of people that still do the visitation, I think, in some churches. But, but it kind of vanished from, I don't even know when it vanished, but it just kind of phased itself out and we quit. So you doing did it without appointments? You just showed up and knocked on the door? Well, we'd try to call sometimes. Yeah. But some people thought that you shouldn't call because they'd say no. <laughs> but we always tried to call if we could, mm -hmm. just as a courtesy. Our That's offensive guests were Margin Hugh. And John Root. Oh, well, you had good ones. We had good ones. You had good ones. Well, you know, we we made friends, but I don't think any of them ever decided to come to Otter Creek because we visited them in their home. Uh, we came because Fletcher was there, and Karen mm -hmm. grew up with Fletcher. So. <laughs> and that was Doug Smith here when you came already? Not no. yet. Not yet. He came later. Three months later. I couldn't. I knew it was about the same time, but. <coughs> okay, one of the things that came out of, in a sense, came out of this having people in our homes. We had had a lot of conversation about the divorce issue. And um, we had one person on the eldership that was very opinionated, and I don't, I don't know that he would have ever changed. He just kind of got overruled at some point. But um, we had a number of people, one of them being Ed and Janie Gleaves, and they were going to uh, Vine Street. And I think their posture was, they felt disenfranchised. Oh. And we had a, we did have a policy that if you were divorced, you couldn't take part in public worship. You couldn't serve communion. Oh. You couldn't pray in church. Oh. Uh, you couldn't have any part in public worship. If that, you were, that would not have been uncommon. No, it was not uncommon. In the Church of Christ. Yeah, it was not uncommon. But the time was coming when people were questioning that. And and it was there were some people that, you know, were looking for something to give them hope, whatever. And um, so Ed and Jane, and of course, I, 
I was in college with both of them and we'd known them for a long time. We'd been at Druid Hills with them when we lived in Atlanta, close friends. And um, we, we knew that they were having issues with it. So we had them over several times and we talked about it. And um, Larry assured them that congregationally they would be welcomed into the fellowship. And Ed just said, well, he could, he could live a long time with that public participation, but he'd like to think there was hope for that at some point in time. But they were willing to come just for people to treat them like they weren't outcast, which they had found in some churches. So that, that brought them in. I was teaching the, um, uh, a Sunday school class and for some reason I always ended up teaching the intermediate grades because nobody else liked to teach them <laughs> and I liked to teach that age uh, I taught eighth first class I ever taught in public school was eighth grade and I love that age they're they're just on the cusp of getting excited about learning and if you can tap that you know it's just I just really enjoyed those kids but I had we had a family come into the church. Uh, both the husband and wife had been divorced and remarried and they had this child, young boy, and he was an adorable boy and he was very bright. And they had been to the elders about their situation and they put it before them and nothing happened. And um, we, we talked to them a lot about it and the the young boy was baptized and the man came back I don't I couldn't pull out their name if I tried so you know they're not they've long since gone somewhere they've moved out of moved out of the state I think but he went to them and he said my son is going to be serving communion and I'd like to serve with him why can't I do that so that that one really triggered it off and they had many, many meetings and many, many discussions. It didn't happen immediately. It was a, it went through a, a, a period, and they finally came to the. Um, it wasn't solution. They came to a position that they would not sit in judgment on somebody's divorce or their reasons for it or their remarriage, and that we would welcome them in. That was between them and God, and we would welcome them in full fellowship. And I remember Doug Davis was the one that made the announcement to the congregation that this would be our position. And, you know, a lot of people were, they had to get used to the idea, but it, it gradually we united in our disunity on that kind of thing. And I'm sure there's still people that have situations about that. But, um, what was this? When was it, Bob? Well, if Doug Davis yeah. was here, we had to have been here, and that's we came in '77. Yeah. I was. It was. I think it was in the late '70s, I, maybe. I really didn't know about all that. I guess. Yeah, that would, I wasn't that'd be aware about right, late '70s. Yeah. Um, I I didn't. I had no way to look up a date on that, so I just uh, I could have put in a parameter <coughs> of some of the people that were there then. But, you know, we've come a whole long way on that. 
and it was it's an issue that a lot of churches are still dealing with and haven't come to the kind of a, of a coexistence that we have made with it and you know we were personally very pleased about it because I w when I was teaching at Lipscomb I think for a teacher to be divorced was was uh, a problem for a while and then they started allowing well now you know Sarah Whitten was one of the first ones that they allowed Sarah and, and she was teaching before they'd ever let anybody else I don't know how that happened. I was not around. They also fired her because she was seen taking. A took took a glass. Of wine. Took a bunch of kids to Europe and yeah. and had a glass of wine. But but she came back. Yeah. And uh, but I think that ironically, Pullius was the one that fired her. Yeah. But and you know, when somebody, I'm not trying to defend Lipscomb what they did, except on this point, they had a policy. Yeah. that you signed an agreement with when you were employed. Now, if you don't want to abide by that policy, don't sign it. Don't work there. But if you're going to abide by it, now, it may have been a silly policy, which I don't think it was, and we finally got rid of it while I was on board. But I was asked, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you dance? That was on my sheet. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about that, Larry always teased me about it, and I don't know how it happened. I, I, I can't imagine. I think that was just on the application. Yeah. yeah. I never applied. I don't know why. I never applied. They call me. And you didn't have to sign this. And somebody said something bad, and I said, well, I didn't sign anything like that. And I, they hired me without me applying. I, I applied at a small, I taught at a small Christian school in St. Louis for a year, and on their job application, um, it was, at, they asked if I believed in the one cup doctrine. And so, and, and so knowing why they put that, I put yes. <laughs> I heard. And, and so then they asked me, they asked me, they said, you checked yes here? I was like, yeah, one cup, a whole bunch of little bitty cups, doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> I had a, still hired me. <laughs> I had a friend that when they asked her about the, you know, do you, whatever in dance, and she said, not very well. <laughs> well, I was going to, at, this stage in my life, I would have written not well enough to teach it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when I that was the first time I wrote out an application for them. In the late 60s. But the second time, when I really did want to teach there, <clears throat> I, I gave a recommendation sheet to Perry Cotham and one to John Crothers. And John Crothers put on there, yes, she can pray, yes, she can preach, yes, she can. <laughs> he said, I've never heard her, but I'm sure she can do it. <laughs> well, um, I've had many questions asked me about women participating in the worship. And um, I, I've kind of always felt like that they should. Um, the first, ti first time that I remember any problem with that here was uh, when Bobby Lee Holly came uh, and you know Bobby Lee was editor of Mission Magazine yeah. and um, was well known and Ed 
Ed Holly was a real mentor to me. Ed was de very dear. I, I loved them both very much. Bobby Lee was my freshman dorm supervisor when I went to Lipscomb. And uh, she was in graduate school then. But she, w she came, and I guess Perry, I guess Perry was preaching when, she, when this happened. And she um, wanted to speak to the congregation. And, you know. I think the assumption was she was going to talk about Mission Magazine. Mm -hmm. But she didn't. She, she preached. She preached. <laughs> uh, but. And it was great. <laughs> we had one elder that was in very much opposed to it. One I knew. There may have been another. I don't know. I, but I know, I know the one because he talked to us about it. Um, he disagreed with us about it. Um, but they solved that by having a short devotional and saying amen and then they let Bobby Lee get up on the pulpit. <laughs> That's what Lipscomb did when they had a, high, a female high school chorus teacher in the 70s. They would have the Sunday night service, they would dismiss the service and then the chorus would get up to sing so she could lead it. Yeah, my kids were in the chorus then. Well, we still do that. Josh will interview someone on the stage, she's a woman. <laughs> Uh, oh, or the, the, the other. Well, but the other, the other, the other way that they do it is by doing the kids when the kids do it, and that's that's the way that's that's the way that instruments got brought in. That's the way that female preachers get brought in because you can do it in the youth group, and so eventually you have if, to do it here. If there's a teenage boy on the stage too, I haven't seen it all a female preaching team yet, but we're still working on this one. <laughs> well, Fletcher asked me to leave some time for discussion. And I think we've got about 10 minutes, so um, if anybody wants to question or whatever or remember or... I want to go back to Jennings Davis. Okay. <coughs> I, I did. I think you were not... Us. I did. Yeah. He was before us. In, in 1946, I was five years old. My dad took me to a Lipscomb College basketball game at the Classification Center. This was after Burton Gym, but before McQuitty Gym. And Jennings was a great basketball player in college. I, he grew up at Hillsboro, some years ahead of me. Uh, his dad was old Jennings Davis, and he's old Jennings Davis Jr. I don't know what the old stood for. But he, he, he gave me my first job. I was a daycare counselor and worked under Jennings. And I just idolized him. And you know the story about Catherine Meeks the, the uh, Episcopal Bishop who was, when she was a freshman at Pepperdine, she's African-American, when she was a freshman at Pepperdine, there was a worker on campus that was killed, a person of color, maybe a African-American, maybe a Latino. But Pepperdine wanted to sweep it under the rug, and Jennings would not allow that to happen. And she said, that's when I kind of my conversion experience was seeing him and two or three others lead in that area. He, I think you came in late. I did talk about Jennings the first week. You mentioned him. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. But now you came, <coughs> he was here when you were in school, right? I, yes, he was here. I, but he had already, when I came in 60, he had, he had already. Well, he left, uh, yeah. He, he preached at Otter Creek two short periods of time. Uh, one, and I used to come here occasionally with Mary Lou Carter to church at Otter Creek um, when I was a, when we were, I guess, juniors. He, 
he came, I think, 56, and he preached for maybe a year, part of a year. And then there was a short gap in that. And then he preached another part of a year. And that second time he, was when he left to go to Pepperdine. And um, I, I think, and, and Ed Neely followed him, and Ed Neely had followed him preaching many places. But uh, I think Jennings was the one that really started the shaping of Otter Creek. And, and several of us that knew him, he started, Ed Neely came along and kind of picked up. He wasn't here very long. Had he been here much longer, I think it would have been a, a, a much different situation. But when, um, when we were working on the bios, uh, somebody, I don't I think Barbara Inkema gave me an assignment to do some on some of our ministers. And Jennings was one of them. She said they couldn't find anything. And I said, well, we've got things in the archives at, at, in the library. I'll check and see. But um, I happened to catch Jerry Rushford at the, uh, when he was doing his program in the library one night. And, and I said, Jerry, do you all have an official bow of Jennings? And this was just about a year before he died, maybe less than that. And he said, oh, yes, and I just finished one. And said, I took it to him to look at, to, at, to approve it. I said, I'll send you a copy of it. And I said, fine. So I thought I gave that to you. I don't have a bow. Well, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's in my computer. I have something from the yeah. newspaper that the newspaper wrote about Jennings and the church. Mm -hmm. Well, it may have been taken from part of that. I don't know, but I'll send it to you just, okay, just in case. But um, um, I decided, Jerry, I was telling him, you know, about, the, about Otter Creek and the connection. And Jerry said, you know, Carolyn, you ought to just write a letter to Jennings and Vera and tell them about what Otter Creek is now and what they're doing and, and the things that they've done since you couldn't imagine when you were there. So I did, and I sat down and did it right then. I'm glad I did, because he could have died if I'd put it aside and, and waited. And at that time, he was not even reading. But I wrote about six pages of History of Otter Creek from the time he left until now. And uh, Jerry told me that Vera read it to him. She, she said many times, he'd say, read me a little bit about that again. And I was really glad that I did because I think it gave him a lot of pleasure to know that. And, and I mentioned that many people felt that he was one of the groundbreaking people we had in terms of changing our thinking and bringing us along in, in the way that we ultimately went. Can you supply your six-page letter? Yeah. I've got read? both of them. Yeah, okay. that would be good to have. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I did check some dates and facts on it, but don't. I was rushing to get it done, so uh, dates I'm not sure are 100% accurate, so don't hold me to that. But I'll I don't know if anyone will read what I'm trying to collect, but as I have read it, I just have been stunned by the kinds of people who. <coughs> who helped make this congregation. Eddie, what I have about Eddie Gleaves. And, and I sat by him in church and I visited him in his home and I had no idea of what a man he was, 
how appreciated he was, how he changed the library system in this state, how he uh, <laughs> translated books into uh, Spanish for uh, Central American schools. I, I, there, there was just so much. And then everybody sang. And he was just such a fine man. He was just such a good man. He was so kind to me. He showed me that, well, I read all this stuff and I'm crying as I read it. I think people, people would enjoy it if they could read it. But, um, you know, I'm not sure it'll ever be read, but I think it's important to keep it all. I do too. And I just got stuff about the Armstrongs uh, from Mar Martha Burnett and... Uh, about the there's a there's a Tennessee Tennessee an article about Helen winning the Strobel Award in 1998. Mm -hmm. I remember I that. Not known that. I remember that. Well, in in a kind of an ending to this, and this is my testimonial, but I've thought many times when my father died, uh, Jenny was two years old. We'd been in Otter Creek two years, and it was really a blow to me. Uh, not only because I was so close to him, but it was the first time death had touched me that dramatic, profoundly, uh, because my daddy was just my rock and I always felt he'd be around. And it, it was much too soon for him to go. He was 60 years old. Um, but, you know, this congregation just wrapped me up during my learning how to grieve and, and, and then after that, it, you know, it was my mother and then my brother, well Larry first of course. Yeah. And was he 48? He had just turned 49 for, by a few weeks. Um, he, he also has a story that is unbelievable. And Ruth Rucker always said that she had never known anybody prayed over as much as Larry Wilson. But the thing that was so affecting to us was that Charlie Brandon, right, it was, you know, we knew things. We always knew the odds with Larry's cancer, it had never been successfully treated. And he had very experimental therapy. He was in the hospital at Vanderbilt for eight weeks quarantined. And nobody could see him but me. And um, yet, you don't ever quite give up hope. You try to live with the reality of what your situation is, but you don't ever give up hope because that's just what you have to hang on to, to, to make it through. Um, but Charlie Brandon got up one night and made the suggestion that uh, the church unite in a 24-hour period of fasting and prayer on Larry's behalf. Do you remember that, Bob? I remember that. And, you know, I don't think anything ever touched him as much as that. It, and, and he could hardly talk about it without crying. It was, it was such a kind, dear, loving act. To, to know that, and, and you know, they were praying, but that dedicated period uh, was just such an amazing experience. I'll never forget it, and my children will never forget it. And Alyssa uh, left, uh, Jenny was already married, of course. Uh, Jenny left and went to Valleys because she wanted to pr pray with, with the Maddox family. That was just, she, of course, she lived there a lot of the time anyway. But um, those are the kind of things that stay with you. And, and 
from 1961 till now, that's why I'm still here. So, amen. Amen. I hope that recorded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then I, you hit stop. I, I have uh, 